Well, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And we're going to be starting a new series this morning on the book of James. We just finished Galatians over the past couple of months, and now we're uh, moving ahead with um, another of the epistles. And that will continue on through the fall. So we're going to start with a show of hands. How many of you have ever heard the saying, don't pray for patience, God might just give it to you? Okay, keep your hands up if you've actually said it. (sighs) Okay, well, I believe that that thought is a reaction to the passage that we're about to jump into today. Um, The reaction, I believe, is a misinterpretation of the text. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. Count it joy, my brethren, when you counter various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. We get a little afraid about that. We want patience, but we're afraid of what God's going to have to do to us to give it to us, right? Well, is that fear legit? Is that exactly what James is talking about in this passage? Well, as Indigo Montoya said in The Princess Bride, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) There's quite a few passages in the book of James that are uh, difficult And we're going to spend the rest of the fall studying it um, here at the 11 o'clock hour at New Hope. And when I say difficult, it's because at a first look, some of the passages seem to contradict what's taught in the rest of the New Testament. Um, There's been whole church movements inspired by the wrong um, interpretation of some of these passages. So I'm really glad we're studying James. uh, it's, It's a good thing. Here's a couple of examples of those interpretations. Faith without works is dead. That's in the book of James. Now that one's been the bane of my existence because I'm so about the gospel and about grace. Um, The Lordship Salvation folks use this one to judge whether you're saved or not by your works. And if there's not enough works, then you must not be saved. Martin Luther called James the epistle of straw because of this seeming contradiction between James and the Apostle Paul because Paul said, by grace you are saved, Uh, Through faith and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. So there's a contradiction there. Something is wrong with how we're interpreting, because the New Testament does not contradict itself. It's all got the same author, the Holy Spirit. Another one in, in James. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, the prosperity gospel people love that one because it gives them a blank check uh, to name it and claim it, right? Is that what that means? And another one, the prayer of faith will heal the sick person. It's a call to prayer, but some Christians have taken it to mean that if someone's not healed, it means that they did not pray with enough faith. Because that's a promise that if we pray with faith, you will be healed. Um, But that puts the burden on the person praying and not on God. Um, So not only are you sick, but now you're guilty (laughs) because you didn't have enough faith. Um, So if we pray with enough faith, does that obligate God to heal? So there's verses like these and more in the book of James. So it's a really good thing because we need to get to the bottom of these verses because they're in the Bible and they're true. And so we have to figure out how they jive with the rest of the New Testament because they uh, they are used to promote some very uh, questionable doctrine. So we'll start today by looking at the first 18 verses of James. 
And no, we won't be here till 2 o'clock. I'm going to get through 18 verses. We're going to take it apart piece by piece and then put it all back together again to see what implications this first part, these 18 verses in James, has for our lives today. So let's start with verses 1 to 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the author, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you counter various trials, encountered various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, that's a good start. Let's pray before we get going. Lord, I thank you so much for the book of James. I thank you for your word and how powerful it is and how it transforms our lives. I thank you, Lord, that it's available to us and we can look and study it and learn uh, more about you from its pages. So, Lord, we just ask for your guidance this morning. We pray your Holy Spirit, who is, is alive and active in all of us that are believers, that he would uh, just make the meaning clear to us as we go through this passage. We don't want to put words in your mouth, Lord. We always want to know the intended meaning of a passage. Please help us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, Some of you might have a version of the Bible that says, count it all joy. Well, the original word really means consider or think about. So think about it as all joy. All does not mean everything, not like don't be joyful about your trials. The all actually modifies um, joy. So consider it all joy, implying pure or entire joy. Okay, and then finally, sorry, uh, joy is not happiness. We try to equate the two sometimes, but it's a state of being rather than an emotion. Uh, It's a gladness. It's contentment in every situation. It's an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated, thankful trust in God. Don't you love that? A thankful trust in God. It's a state of being. So kind of look at this verse like this. Think on trials with pure gladness. When you encounter various trials, know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, I got a little surprised this week as I studied this passage because it's very familiar to me. I've even spoken on it a few times. And I looked at this passage with a totally different light, which I just love when the Lord does that for me. Um, You take, you know, this passage, yeah, blah, 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 consider all joy. I know this like backwards and forwards. And I started to study it and went, wow, because God just does that. He reveals new things. And it's, it's always his word is just bottomless in what we can get from it. But this is what I found. I found that there's really one type of trial that he's talking about in verses 3 to 12, the testing of your faith. And then the second part of our passage, there's really another kind of trial he's talking about, a temptation to sin. But both times when he talks about them as trials, he talks about them as perasmos, which is the Greek word. And I don't often say Greek words. My seminary professor like, drilled it into us. We're not supposed to do that. But I think it's really important this time, so I'm going to do it. The original word for both kinds of trials is literally translated test. Okay? When a perasmos, a test, is from God, it's translated test or trial. When a perasmos is from Our enemies, in this case, Satan or the flesh, it's translated temptation. But it's the same Greek word. 
So the context really determines whether the test or temptation is being used. The first kind of trial is considered a test by James. The second is considered a temptation. So let's take a look at the very first kind of trial, the testing of your faith. And he tells us the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, the source of the trial is God. And tests from God are a means to an end. There's something he's doing with the test. He's doing it to develop us, to change us, to transform us into the image of Christ. And so it's a good thing. You know, I used to be a teacher, and classroom teacher. I guess I'm still teaching now. But as a classroom teacher, I gave a lot of tests in fifth grade. And, um, and people did not like tests. Um, I didn't like them either when I was in seminary because I'd have almost a heart attack. We'd take a test in seminary. We'd come in, three-hour class, and the professor would say, well, we don't want to take the whole class for this test, so let's go ahead and I'm going to lecture you for the first hour and a half, and then I'll give you the test. And the whole time he's lecturing, I'm thinking, it's all leaking out my ears. <laughs> I'm not going to remember. Students are fearful. They're going to prove, to, to, uh, prove mastery of a class content. But I can tell you that as a former teacher, an educator views a test as more than an opportunity for a student to prove that they know. It's actually a continuance in their instruction. Because a test, a good test anyway, calls for more than simple fact recall. A good test provides an opportunity for students to use what they know. That's what those essay questions, that's what those blue book things were all about. It's proving their knowledge accurate and valuable. Taking the memorized information, using it, and in a sense, really proving its validity in how it plays out in reality. Well, God has those very things in mind for us when he gives us a test and he tests our faith. It's our faith that's being tested. Our faith started with information. The Bible says faith begins when we hear the word of God. And faith, believe, faith was believing. Faith and believing comes from the same word, what you heard. But God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just leave us with information we believed. And yes, he's given us salvation in his Holy Spirit. But he brings tests then to give us an opportunity to take that belief and put it to use. A test forces us to apply what we know and it makes a very real, tangible thing out of our faith. It proves the validity of what you know about God. You know, as an illustration, in driver's ed, uh, we all took the class at one time or another and we, we uh, were you know, very concerned about learning all the rules and we poured over the rules and we looked at the instructions and how to drive and how to park and how fast to go and how many car lengths to leave between you and the next person and all those things we just take for granted now. But back then we had to learn it by the book. And then finally we got behind the wheel. Well, I found it was a very different thing to get behind the wheel than it was to read the book. I knew the book, but my cousin Kathy was actually the first person that took me out in the road. I don't know what my mother was thinking. There wasn't anything wrong with Kathy, but... <laughs> We were kind of a pair. We were, you know, we were only a couple years apart. But anyway, we went out on the road, and I can remember at one particular light stalling out because I pressed the accelerator and I lift my foot off it real fast because I was nervous about going forward. And anyway, we ended up sitting through a couple of the lights, and the line behind us was not very 
understanding. And finally, my cousin said, get out of the car and get to the passenger side. And she slid over, and I got to the passenger side, and we drove away. <laughs> and I never saw any of those people again. But it's very different driving than it is reading about driving. And faith, it's very different using your faith than it is just believing it for the first time. There are some things you just can't get from a book. So it's the same with faith. It's useless in our lives here on earth unless we apply it to every part of our lives. And what's the result then of having your faith put to the test? Endurance. Now some of you might have a translation that says patience, perseverance, steadfastness. I looked it up in, in all my favorite translations and everyone had a different word for it. But the Greek lexicon translates the original word as the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty, the act or state of patient waiting for someone or something, expectation. The testing of faith is a trust in God and it turns our faith into an ability to wait on him. Now we're not talking about patience here. Not in the sense we usually use patience. Usually when we use patience, we're talking about being nice to our kids when they're annoying the heck out of us. That's patience, right? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about endurance, the ability to use your faith. It's a difference between head knowledge and uh, like intellectual assent and practical use. It's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. So what are James' instructions then as to what to do when we are in a test of faith? Well, we're going to go on and read verses 5 to 12 now. But if any of you lacks wisdom while you're going through this trial of having your faith tested, let him ask of God, who gives all <clears throat> to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who loved him. <clears throat> we ask God for wisdom when we're in the test. Wisdom is something that God is eager to give us. It's knowledge. It's, wisdom is to knowledge as endurance is to faith. Wisdom to knowledge endurance to faith. It turns us into people who believe God no matter what the circumstances. Wisdom is so desirable for that reason because without wisdom, he just said, an ability to apply your faith to any situation, without that, you are like a piece of driftwood totally at the mercy of the next gust of wind or big wave. So we ask God for wisdom while in the trial. But James cautions us here with those verses we just read. There are really two caveats, two limiting factors when you ask for wisdom. First, he says, ask within the context of faith. 
And the second thing he says is ask in humility. Because God values faith and our believing in him and what he says very highly. And in faith, we're really expressing humility because throwing our trust in him requires admitting we cannot do it on our own. So uh, we ask in, in uh, faith and we ask in humility. Now the Israelites, they weren't so good at those two things. Uh, back Way back when, after God had taken them out of Egypt and Moses had led them and they got to the border of the promised land, they sent out 12 spies to check out the land. And 10 of them came back and they were a little negative. They were a lot negative. We can't do it. Those people, they're in these big fortified cities and they make us look like grasshoppers. They're so big. And we, oh, you know, and the other two said, what? We can take them. We can take them because God is doing it for us. What are you doing? You know, and the people got so mad at the two guys who were being faithful to God and believing in God's promises. They wanted to stone them. So there's this big uproar in the tent. And everybody's mad, almost a riot. And then finally, God talks to Moses and he says, look, they don't want to go in the promised land? Fine, they're not going in the promised land. They're going to spend the rest of their lives out in the desert because they're not approaching, they're not believing me. And I'm not going to take them into the promised land. So they'll put their lives in the desert and I will take their children in. So the people hear that and oh, they're crying, crying. They're in their tents and bawling their eyes out for all night long and they're all upset. And in the morning they get up and they say this. Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but... We will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. We're going in. What? Moses says, do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies because the Lord is not among you. Didn't you hear what I talked to you last night? You will fall by the sword inasmuch as you've turned back from following the Lord. And they went anyway. Two problems we see here in the Israelites. They had disbelief, no confidence in, the God, in God who had promised them these things. And secondly, they were doing things on their own terms. There was not one ounce of humility in what they were doing. Well, guess what? It didn't end very well for them. They were beaten soundly. But look at they, what they were like when they were without faith, without humility. First, they riot against the two spies, refusing to trust God. They're angry. Then they hear the punishment. They spend their nights crying their eyes out in the tent. Then they decide they're going to go in and fight, even without the Lord. This is all within a period of less than 24 hours. Very erratic behavior. Exactly how James describes a person without faith. Double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's a great story that illustrates this. They were a negative example of faith and humility. But here's a positive one. Habakkuk. I don't know if you remember Habakkuk. We did a series on him a couple years ago. But what he does is he sees all these things, um, and he he sees all of these things going on around him. The government's corrupt, the the poor are being oppressed, things are happening, and he goes to God. But he goes to God in frustration, but not with God himself. He remembers who God is, and he lists all these things. Lord, I know you're this, I know you're this, I know you're this. So how does this, these circumstances, make sense based on who you are. You see how it's different? It's, it's, it's approaching God in the context of believing him, having faith in him. And those questions, they didn't end in the disaster. 
that the faithless people of Israel experienced. It actually ended in a deeper knowledge and trust in God, which is always a good thing. So that's one kind of a test, test of our faith. Then James goes on to talk about a different kind of test. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But to each one, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. When the tests, while tests from God are instrumental in learning uh, to apply our faith to daily living, tests from the enemy do not have development in mind. What they have in mind is destruction. It's a different kind of test. Satan delights in malicious testing. He works to cause destruction with his challenges. His first test was actually admitted in the, uh, administered in the Garden of Eden. Genesis uh, 3 has him questioning Eve's understanding of God, what God had said, twisting his words, to suggesting a selfish motivation to his commands, and Eve failed the test. She doubted God's words. She doubted his intentions. And the result of, of the test that Satan gave was devastation to the relationship between God and man. We read other times when Satan puts God people to the test. Job, Jesus, Peter, Paul. Each time, his goal was to destroy. Now, James doesn't specifically name Satan, as you might have noticed, but he does name lust which the New Testament identifies as from the flesh, and evil, which identifies Satan's involvement, because he's the source of evil. When lust turns into action, sin is accomplished, and sin, rather than the crown of life, has the opposite effect, death. Two kinds of tests. So James tells us, don't be deceived. Beware. Our appropriate reaction can only be known if we identify the source. We have to look for the source in the temptation because God does not tempt with evil. If you're being pulled towards sin, that's a temptation. It's not from God. It's Satan pushing you toward destruction. Walk away. Get out of there because that's what he has in mind for you with that test. But if a test is from God, ask for wisdom. Ask with humility Ask in the context of faith, and the result of trusting him in the test will be the crown of life and not destruction. God has good things in mind for us. Paul called it a kind intention. He is working to equip us with a kind of trust in him that will allow us to survive the worst of what life can throw at us. So James finishes up with verses 17 and 18. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Tests from God produce trust in the one who's rock steady, never changing, always consistent, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. They produce the ability to hang on to that rock-solid anchor. It's what he brought us forth for. That by hearing and believing the word of God, we would be part of the long line of the faithful, which will continue to bring others to him. Okay, so we get to the, so what? How should this passage impact us today? 
Well, life is hard, in case you haven't noticed. Terrible things are going to happen in each of our lifetimes. It's just the way it goes. Illnesses, family issues, financial problems, tragedy. Sometimes those things are right out of the blue. No fault of our own. At that moment, when these things happen to us, we have a decision to make. Will we walk away? Turn our backs on God in our panic like the Israelites did at the spies report? Or will we turn toward God, remembering why we decided to trust him in the first place? How should we respond when a dreaded test comes our way? Well, to answer that question, and I think it's important because it really is the application to what we've been seeing today in this passage, I want to tell you a story of the blizzard of 1888. Now, there was a famous blizzard that you, you probably heard more about in uh, New York City, but that was in March. This one was in January, and they actually call it the children's blizzard, or the schoolhouse blizzard. Um, it, it happened in the Plains states, Nebraska and the Dakotas. Um, a terrible, terrible blizzard. The storm completely caught people off guard. The early hours of the day were unseasonably warm, even though it was January. Of course, they said unseasonably warm. It was in the upper 20s. <laughs> so men were working without their coats and children went with, and I'm thinking, 28 degrees, really? <laughs> oh, they didn't live in Maryland, apparently, the people that wrote the article. But anyway, um, the early hours that day were unseasonably warm. The cattle were in the field. Children were playing outside during the noon recess and men worked outdoors without coats. And then the wind changed directions. And this black mass headed toward the population um, with thick, blinding snow just rolled right across the plains. Little John Craig was a seven-year-old farm boy, and he lived nine miles uh, southeast or in, in Nebraska, in Lee, Nebraska. He was in a country school when that cold front hit his school building. And, and it happened about 2 p.m. for him, and he said, with the suddenness of a clap of thunder, the sheer front of the blizzard crashed against the schoolhouse like a tidal wave, shaking the wooden frame building and almost lifting it from its foundation. Can you imagine? It was a blinding storm. The temperature dropped quickly. Within 24 hours, it had dropped almost 100 degrees. Crazy. Um, the wind was blowing the snow like crazy. There were gusts up to 73 miles per hour and heavy snow. You can just imagine. It was piling up fast. At the end of the storm, 50 inches of snow would have fallen. It's estimated about 500 people perished in the storm who were caught out in the open and got lost trying to find their way back out to shelter. One man wrote that walking in the storm was like trying to see with my face pushed into a snowdrift. Um, church bells were, were tolled and mill whistles sounded at one-minute intervals to guide people lost on the prairie back to safety. It was a wild day. It hit a lot of locations just as schools were dismissing. Many teachers kept their students for two nights until the rescuers arrived. Uh, one children had children ring the school bell day and night to let people know that they were safe, that they were okay. Other teachers made the decision to get their kids back into town knowing their parents would be beside themselves, thinking they were lost in the snow. There was this one particular teacher, her name was Minnie Freeman, and she made the decision to move her students 
when the wind took the roof off of the schoolhouse. <laughs> wow. She grabbed a, a, ball, a ball of sturdy twine that she happened to have at her desk, and she had the children hold on to the rope in a line. I told them we would all have to stick together. If anyone was to stop to rub cold hands, we would all stop. We went two by two with strict orders to keep hold of the one just ahead, holding on to that twine. She said that walking into the wind toward the farmhouse where she boarded kept her from wandering off course because she knew the direction was exactly where she needed to be head. So she walked straight into the wind. The visibility was four to five feet. That's as far as she could see ahead. And she said this, somehow or other we managed to struggle to that house where hay was put on the floors, covers brought out, and all the children taken care of for the night. Parents were desperate. When they found all were saved, they called it providential. It must have been because not far away, a farmer froze to death trying to get to his house from the barn, only 150 feet away. People without a lifeline perished. You know, when trials hit, they can feel like a blinding storm. There's no way to see past it when you're in the middle. It can threaten our very existence and has the potential to completely alter our lives forever. But like those struggling children, head into the wind, clinging to the rope in the storm, our biggest uh, priority during a test is to hang on. Hang on. Hang on to the God you've believed in. Hold tight to who he is. Powerful, wise, kind, and good. Trust in his character. Keep your eyes on him and not on your circumstances swirling around you. Just hold on to him, following him one step at a time, and he will lead you to where you're supposed to go. And as you struggle, your head bowed into the wind, remember, consider it joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that in you, you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these words. I thank you that you are that God that we can look to, that we can trust you because you are so worthy of our trust. Thank you, God, that you have power to command any circumstance. Thank you that you love us unfailingly, that you've given us mercy and grace, that we don't have to earn anything from you, that you give it to us undeserved. I thank you, God, for all of those things. Help us to remember those things, the reasons we trusted you for our salvation to begin with when the trials come along. Um, help us, Lord, as we leave this place today to be determined to set our face on you, not on the things that swirl around us that discouraged or test us, but on you, because you are the giver of endurance. You will use it for our development, and we will have a faith that will be worth anything in any circumstance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.